This is Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. This is a podcast about climate action and solutions, not doom and gloom. We are not planning on Mars as our next destination, because right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. We bring you inspirational stories from women environmental leaders who are working on the ground in many different arenas, addressing climate change challenges. Their work is real and positive. We have created a platform to amplify the voices of women environmental leaders because they are committed to bringing innovation and compassion to the problems that affect us all. One of our solutions is to partner with Tree Sisters, and we make a donation to Restoring Forests on your behalf with each new subscription. We invite you to join us, listen to the podcast, and subscribe to the website evoicesrising.com. We also publish a monthly blog and newsletter with resources on our website. Stay with us for today's conversation. My guest today is Eloisa Lewis, founder and CEO of New Climate Culture, helping individuals, companies, and organizations reimagine and redesign opportunities for future economies using permaculture as a framework for holistic thinking. Eloisa is joining us today from her temporary abode on board her solar-powered bus. Welcome, Eloisa. Thank you so much for having me in your programming today. You are a visionary, and you've created a company that grounds its thinking in permaculture principles, but it is also embracing your visionary ideals and goals for a new climate culture. So to begin with, I'd like to ask you, what is your big outrageous intention? My big outrageous intention and project that I would like to manage would be just helping this beautiful planet that we all share as a human family really see clear pathways toward world peace and environmental integrity. Well, world peace is a beautiful and definitely an outrageous intention. And I also get the idea that your company and creating a new climate culture is about rethinking how we live on this planet with world peace. So can you say more? Exactly. Yeah. It's really rethinking about how we exchange goods and we have our built environment around us really determines our quality of life. The, you know, where our water comes from, where our food comes from, the amount of public spaces that are available for meeting and gathering and creating with other community members, as well as just creating like really abundant and interesting and fulfilling lives together, knowing that that's kind of what we're all seeking. And once we can like admit that and recognize that in, in ourselves and each other, that's how we can advance so much further into new potentials and possibilities of industry that have maybe not been seen before or have been lost. So you said that we're all seeking, or, and do you think that in our heart of hearts as humans on this planet that we are seeking world peace? I think that certainly we are seeking inner peace. And I think that is a reflection of world peace because our inner peace is dependent on our environment. We're not able to have um, peaceful lives, restful sleep, 
and, you know, productive days if we're in an ecological war zone or a political war zone. And many people in the world, in fact, most of us are caught up in one or both of those categories. I think you're speaking about this from a philosophical position. So let me ask you about that because I know you studied philosophy, artificial intelligence, and neuroplasticity. And then you made this interesting crossover to permaculture, permaculture thinking and design, which is all about living in harmony and sustainability with all of nature. Can you tell us about that and how you saw those connections? Absolutely. So my training in philosophy, logic, and epistemology really prepared me to understand what the basis of a good argument is or like a valid argument. It helped me understand math, helped me understand logic that underlies all the systems that we're a part of. And that then took me to artificial intelligence, where I was studying cognition and trying to learn about how we can have more plasticity in our in our learning so we can learn better, faster, and with more flexibility in our brains and our neural connections. Through that process, I was studying different minerals and the foods that aid in neuroplasticity and the development of neuroplasticity and also practices such as like learning new languages and playing an instrument can help and just keeping the mind really regenerative. And once I started studying the regeneration of the mind, it was clear that the mind is not just the brain, the mind is the whole body. And then from there, it became clear that the body is dependent on the environment for its health as well. And so this regeneration wasn't really truly fully possible if the mind was just dependent on, like kind of separate from the environment. If the mind is separate from the environment, then the full integrated regeneration we need for the most highest learning capacity and also to combat things like Alzheimer's and degenerative diseases are really dependent on the lifestyles we live and therefore the built environment that we live in. So in order to live an abundant life, it is essential to understand all these connections that we have with our environment. And this is very much what the permaculture system entails. Tell us about permaculture, its system, and how you came to it. Yeah, so I came to it through a kind of a few convergences at once. One idea is optimization, and the other idea is biomimicry. So I'll speak to optimization first really quick. So the idea of permaculture and the process of permaculture really is about best practices and trying to eliminate anything that's less than optimal for the environment and for the human lifestyle. And that kind of is might sound like really strict, but it's actually really liberating because through studying optimization of regeneration, we found that more wild and curious and unregulated systems had the most interesting and radical growth. And then biomimicry led us to study growth and in ourselves and in the environment and find what was the most advanced technology that nature was already producing for us to use to optimize our systems. So optimization led me to permaculture and biomimicry because permaculture really is the study of biomimicry and the utilization of nature's best design. I really dug into biomimicry myself. And one of, uh, one of the core insights that I remember is that in biomimicry, the idea that life creates conditions that are conducive to life. That is, nature is always life-producing and continuing Absolutely. I find that life is so life affirming. 
that life really is like, as I observe it in nature, so unconditionally loving and so wants to grow and spread everywhere and experiment and taste and try. And, and, and there's this kind of playfulness to, to biology once you start observing whether it's in, or not just biology, but in physics and chemistry, like there's, there's this underlying play that's going on, this interplay of identities, of energies. And that is what creates all these different combinations and permutations of reality that we're a part of. So I love thinking about the future because I think about how can we push the limits now that we're, we, we have so much resources, so much intellectual resources and so much, um, so many people interested in helping change the world and reimagining the world. And I really want us to pair that energy with biomimicry and, and the, the groundedness of this reality and, and not get too lost in just like the idea of technology saving us or something like that when often what's best for us are just the simplest things in life, the most humble things like clean air, clean water, clean food, clean soil. And once you have that, you really have almost everything. And so people can get kind of caught up in other material or ideological realities. But what nature keeps bringing me back to in this interplay that it is, is that what is simple and uncomplicated is very much where we want to focus uh, our resources, our time and attention, because it's, it can be the, it is, it's proven. It's like the most profound thing for humans, for our children, for ourselves to just focus on these remediating the environment and inter- interacting with the environment, learning from it so that we can actually strengthen ourselves so that we can actually evolve with nature as nature is always changing and evolving and creating new ways, better pathways, shortcuts, things like that. We want to learn from our great teacher, which is in our great teachers, which is everything around us all the time. And, and that's really like what gets me, what drives me. I wanted to give the audience an, another view of permaculture, and that's actually one that I heard you give in an interview that explains permaculture in a very beautiful way. And that was this idea of a circle. Could you share that with us? Oh, absolutely. So permaculture for me really is a circle. And by a circle, it applies so much information about what's going on in the system because a circle um, is something that it's contains infinite angles and points in it geometrically. So that means there's kind of room for infinity in a circle, room for the eternal and room for everyone. And also a circle is an equalizing thing in that like there's no there's not a really a hierarchy in any placement in the circle. There's this equality that happens when people stand in a circle or eat in a circle where there's no beginning or end. And for that reason, that leads me on to what is cyclical. And a circle is cyclical. And a circle is the basis of something that spirals or revolves or rotates. And that is really beautiful as well, because that is what we're looking to to develop into our future economies. And that's so important for climate science in today's world is thinking about circles and thinking about also social circles and thinking about environmental circles and production line management and everything through the lens of a circle because a circle is self-regenerating like the energy is looping 
in that eternal return or that eternal circuit. And that's what we want to be a part of. We want to be a part of that type of model of energy and create renewable resource cycles, but also renewable um, and regenerative practices in our lives that are beyond just like the resources we manage, but actually the way that we cultivate our own spirits and our own homes is in this fashion of um, circularity, knowing that things cycle through the seasons, things cycle through the hours, through the moon, through so many things, through the water cycle, through the soil cycle. And these things are are all circular and, and, and the circle is the word. One of the other things that I like about circles, and this way also relates back to biomimicry, is that there is any you can enter at any point on a circle to explore a solution. It's not a linear process of goal setting. The growth of a circle is much different than the growth of a linear process. The growth of a circle can take place in many different forms in geometric spaces. And also exactly what you're saying, there's this potential for a different, a new kind of thinking about economic growth and a new kind of thinking about personal growth too and interpersonal growth through understanding circles and circling is a, a way, another way I say of gathering when I talk about like meeting with other people and holding a council. Um, Cause I think it's so important that we empower ourselves to counsel with each other through our problems and rely on ourselves and rely on our community and learn through that process. So that's also something how I, how I use the word circle is definitely when it comes to gathering with people that I work with in any capacity or live with as well. So let's go on. That's, and let me ask you about the people that you do work with and about the company you created, because I'm not really sure how it works. So I would love to hear about that. Okay. So yeah, how, how do I practice like social interactions within this circling concept? So really the most important thing about circling is about having the community respond to crisis. It's having a community respond to crisis, whether it's our family unit or um, our church or our temple or our ecstatic dance community or our fencing club, whatever that community is, considering that we are there to counsel each other, that we're there to regenerate each other, we're there to support each other's growth. And through the practice of circling, I have this program that I've created over the years and that I use within my company, which is centered around open communication and really like really radical open communication, as well as just eliminating things like shame and name calling and distracting elements of communication that can be used to dominate other people or manipulate them through insecurities, things like that. We try and focus on needs-based communication and self-expression and also understanding like what trauma is and how we cause trauma and just making sure that everyone has like a really mutually respectful, mutually beneficial relationship as much as possible and using that information to learn about ourselves, like seeing our own reflection through our interactions in the circle as we resolve conflicts together and as we work together, we're able to learn about ourselves, learn about our things that upset us and how we can relate to the things that upset us and, and sometimes 
it's about creating boundaries and creating agreements. And so a lot of things that, that we do in community circles, no matter what community I'm teaching, is the fundamentally the first thing that I'm teaching them how to do is how to make verbal or contractual agreements that are going to create the foundation of mutual respect in that community to make sure that people, again, feel safe, feel respected, and feel, most importantly, able to speak truth to power. Because so much of my time, I find that people are really, truly afraid of saying what they think because they're afraid of being punished or afraid of being judged or afraid of being ostracized or exiled. Can I just ask you, and I ask you a question, are these the clients, the people that you work with, or you're part of your education? I'm just wondering, you have so these, these circles. So when I hired and when I brought on, when I bring on any contractor to work with me, I take them through an integrative period in their onboarding with myself and the other team members where we welcome them into this culture of circling and we go through all the ways that we circle and what the what our community agreements are since I have my own um, agreements that people have to respect in order to work with me since I already I know about how to set boundaries I know about consent I teach about consent so I have my own things when I'm starting a contract, like how, what does Elsa want to consent to? And then that allows my uh, cohorts to reflect back at me what they would like to consent to since we write our contracts together and we, it's kind of a, a shared 50-50 project so that everyone feels like they're equally expressed and invested in whatever we're doing, as well as really self-spoken. And so that I'm never really just like someone's boss or employer or their authority, because the people I work with, I see them as equals. And I, I want them to not be afraid to come to me when there's a problem and not be afraid to tell me when I'm wrong. So one of the first things I tell people when I onboard them before I ever start working with them is that it, it's an absolute necessity that they're not afraid of me. Because if they're afraid of me at all, then they won't be reliable to me to tell me the truth when I need to hear it. So it's definitely a practice that I have within my company, but also this is what I'm teaching my clients all the time as well. And who who are some of your clients? I mean, are they are they in you're in you work in business the business space, yeah. right? In corporate space, so you're actually bringing some of this this into corporate space. Absolutely, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. One of my um, favorite corporate clients was Newton X in Manhattan, and they're a research company, a B two B research company, and they had me on for a year. I was able to discuss um, nonviolent communication, needs-based communication, circling, um, trauma medicine, trauma circle medicine is what I call it. And also they were able, they allowed me to plan events for them that were with other uh, people and organizations that were in line with this regenerative economy. And yeah, they were just, they were just magnificent. They were really great. They wanted me to start a climate club for them. So um, they were just really, they're really excited about the future and their, their research focus. So they're totally about um, like evidence-based science and things like that. And that was, that was wonderful. I, I've also worked with McGill University, Concordia University up in Canada, many universities in the U.S. And I love working with schools as well, because I find that they're some of the most, um, 
like schools and corporate universities, research institutions and corporations, but especially universities and corporations seem to have a lot of crisis in them, in their structure and a lot of exploitation and kind of unhealthy power dynamics. So those are like my favorite spaces to be in are the most difficult ones um, where there's like where there is a lot of trauma and abuse and a lot of um, like ambiguity and and people not feeling like they can communicate clearly. That's exactly like when I love to be brought in the most because I feel like my groundedness and my experience of um, 15 years in the social justice and environmental justice space has just allowed me to hold so much understanding and provide so much insight for people so that they can be liberated from these old systems of communication and old dynamics of power. And we can have this new, this new system, this regenerative system where people really understand that we're equal to one another and that our our best interests are in line with one another, that it's even good for us to be kind to each other. And it, it it's proven it's good for our health for us to connect with each other and protect each other, nurture each other. But of course, like within the bounds of consent, always within the bounds of consent, because it's when our consent is taken away from us, when we ask people to do something and then they immediately, you know, do the opposite of that or 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 coerce us into what they want or find a loophole that benefits them. These types of things can be really damaging to the to human trust. And tr- when trust breaks down, that's when we find how that war tends to break out. Let's get back to my conversation with Eloisa Lewis envisioning the future and with new climate culture. So Eloisa, this is great working with teaching communication. But I'm I'm curious also about teaching about climate science, because you are a climate scientist. And I don't know how much your clients are aware of or are engaged with the issues of climate science. So how does how does that work? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that is one of, again, one of the really enlivening things about my work and why I'm so dedicated to this work is because I find as I've been a climate scientist and I've been in the climate space for 10 years, specifically the climate space instead of just the general environmental protection space, I have found that what I've learned from the best climate scientists in the world from Project Drawdown, those Kevin Bayek of Project Drawdown was my my teacher, I've found that the work that we're doing and the knowledge that I have integrated is just so few and far between in today's world. And that's why I would love to just continue to have make an impact in new communities and keep finding new communities to share my resources with, because I find that we must be, I feel not that necessarily we're behind where we should be, but certainly we can do better. And I find that there's not enough environmental literacy in the world at all. Like most people, most importantly, cannot even name a climate scientist. Like if they they might like vaguely know of like an, uh, an article where someone working on the climate did something, but like it's not really something I found in most households in most countries. You can just ask like, who's your favorite climate scientist or something like that? Or who's a climate scientist that you believe in? And I find that interesting considering how much attention and resources are being 
projected toward climate emergency, the climate emergency. And so that's just something I'm trying to solve with my company is we feel like we're incredible. We're an incredibly responsible, compassionate group of individuals, dedicated individuals. And we believe that what we have to offer as consultants in the climate space is not only unique, but really, truly the best practices that are happening in the in the community on this planet entirely since our community is so international. Yeah, it's just such no, a... No, I know. And I know. I, I definitely, I'm really in agreement with about being uh, the communication and getting, which is what, how I, because I feel the same way. Like there, there are the, all these people like you who are doing amazing things on the planet and people don't know about you. They should. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about Project Drawdown. I love Project Drawdown, but just for the audience, tell tell us about Project Drawdown. Because that's another place where th- there's a lot of information and it's really well presented. Definitely. Yeah. Project Drawdown is really like if when any of my students that are more on the environmental permaculture or the like classical environmental permaculture side instead of the social permaculture side, when they really want to get deep into or even investors, not just students, but like anyone who has resources today should read Drawdown the book or get involved with the website and start exploring it because that really is the compendium. That is the encyclopedia of climate solutions. And it's the what I consider the world's authority on climate solutions. And I just find that people like that should be something that every child knows and is taught in school, even, you know, before the fifth grade or the the eighth grade. Like I think that everyone should know what climate science is and what the solutions are. And actually, and and when I say solutions, I'm not talking about like simple things that, you know, might come up like wind turbines or solar and maybe not, not so simple when we're talking about lithium mining and things like that, but really understand like what is a climate solution and what isn't when there's hundreds of them and thousands of them um, in the world. And that's, what's important. That's why I want people to look to draw down as a guide, because there's so many climate solutions that you might just find yourself, whoever you are, you might just find yourself in those solutions. Thank you. I'm so glad you brought up Project Drawdown as a resource for getting us educated. And in the spirit of being educated, I would love for you to put on your educator hat for us for, us for a few minutes and share with us your perspective on a couple of permaculture principles, to, just to help the audience get a better idea of what permaculture is and how they might actually be able to incorporate it into their own lives. And the first principle is to just observe. And the second one is to use small and slow solutions. Yes. Um, would you like me to just talk about those two or do you want me to talk about all 12? No, just those two. I mean, great. That's, I wanted to make, I wanted to get a simple, something simple. It's a great start. Oh my gosh. Observe number one. So good. Like, wow. What happens when we step back from our assumptions and our routines and we allow nature to surprise us, to inform us. And that's really what comes to mind when I think of observation. I think about taking a moment to have some inner stillness, to quiet my own mind, to quiet my own body, and to allow that which is around me to speak for itself. And so observation is definitely about yeah, just a, like a kind of 
a kind of welcoming of otherness, of elseness into our reality so that we can further gain information and insights. And sometimes we might just be stuck in our own patterns and we're not particularly inspired. And so observation really is connected to creativity and inspiration for me because, again, we can return to the idea of biomimicry. We can see nature move elegantly and recycle itself and compost back into itself, feed itself. And we might find it's not a, it's not just a might, it's that we do find answers in that as scientists and as climate scientists and as people, just as anyone, anyone can take on a lesson from nature or take in the beauty of nature, even if it's not a lesson, just the raw beauty, the raw symphony, the raw strangeness the raw wilderness of nature, these types of things are just informing. They're just informing. They're simply, um, again, kind of self-spoken. I love that that phrase, self-spoken. I like to be self-spoken and I like others to be self-spoken so that I don't project too much assumption onto the world that is my own. And I think also, does I really like to acknowledge because I don't think we give ourselves credit if we take that moment to stop and breathe and observe, acknowledge that that really is a benefit. Right. Yeah, that is that is the benefit. That is a benefit and the benefit. It's kind of recognizing there's something bigger than ourselves and that we don't have all the answers. When you observe, it means that you're still theorizing. When you observe, you're you're still open to new information, to progression, to change. Because you, when you stop observing, that means that your attention is just not on it anymore. It's diverted. It's you're not observing. You're creating. You're speaking. You're the the source of of the material. But the observation is is again, it's a more passive process. And passivity is really important in permaculture. We really like passivity because passivity sets up systems that require less human intervention. And they run more on their own, their own energy. Oh, brilliant. I love that. (laughs) So let's go on to slow and what was it? Slow and small solutions. Oh my gosh. This This is is for, this is for people who are, you know, looking for those small, slow solutions. Exactly. I feel that that is totally so important because Sometimes people want to solve a problem with a really grand gesture or really or pouring everything into one day or one event or a huge radical lifestyle change. And some people can. And sometimes that's okay. But for a lot of people, it's really uncomfortable to be in that kind of radical change all the time or kind of extravagance. And so for small and slow solutions, we find that Everyone can have an impact in the climate when they slow down and ask themselves what solutions they can be a part of and what solutions relate to them and inspire them instead of like kind of who we have to be, who do we want to be. The slowness is is great. I've been talking with my friends a lot about how we need to hurry up and slow down. So there's this kind of like urgency needed to our slowness because slowness is so important for so many reasons. It's helped regulate our nervous system when we when we think slowly, speak slowly, behave slowly. It helps maintain our like a st- a calm and steady breath and just regulated 
calm nervous system. And then we're able to think clearer, make better decisions, find some relaxation and spontaneity in, in that slowness and allow things to come to us in that slowness as well. And when it comes to this, the slowness, I think of a slow lifestyle as well. That's really important for permaculture and for this new climate culture that I'm consulting about in the climate smart regenerative economy, because part of what we want for people, we want to create economies that allow people to move more slowly. Like what if we had four hour workdays instead of eight? Um, and what if we had more time to slow down with our families and have longer meals and indulge in just lengthening out and drawing out all the things that we love to do and making time for them? That is a solution. And, and integrating that with the climate is that's relevant to the climate because so much of our attention is being forced into these highly draining energy systems. Like even our technology just uses up a lot of energy. Once you start to go off the grid um, as a community or as an individual, I've learned that like how much energy it requires to charge my laptop and how much energy it requires to or my bus with my solar panels and so or how much water I use in a week. And those things are all really important considerations so that I can meet my own needs without government or corporate intervention, which can slow down too much or speed up too much, whatever process is going on. And I can have my own autonomy and I can really prioritize what's important to me. Maybe it's not as important for me to be on the computer for eight hours a day when it requires so much electricity from my, my solar panels and my systems to maintain that. And so I'd rather um, be highly efficient in my work and work less but create more time in my day then by kind of restricting my energy usage and um, rationing my my energy has allowed me to spend more time with my friends and I'm because I'm a total workaholic so it's allowed me to unplug more literally and save energy and then not rely on the grid or not have to make the money to pay the bill for the electricity and stuff like that and instead just folk or or come up with new career paths or new anything. And time is really what I find to be the greatest privilege. I think many of us know that in life, that time is actually the greatest resource of all. So slowing down actually allows more time for our passions, for our thinking, for our creativity, spontaneity, and creativity and is so important, you know, a new world, because we have to imagine it in the first place. If you can't imagine civilization looking any different than it does right now, then you certainly won't seek out solutions or become a part of the solutions that are needed when we know that change is not only inevitable, but very healthy in the natural world. This is so beautiful. Let's all just slow down, breathe, and observe. Is there anything else you would like to tell us about new climate culture, your organization, your work? Or your philosophy? Yeah, well, my most exciting thing going on right now is that William Padilla Brown, one of my business partners of Mycosymbiotics, and I, we founded an, an economic school. So that's launching um, next week. And we're going to have this really high ticket economic school for investors, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, business owners 
People who are successful and have a lot of resources are the people that we want to work with in that school. Of course, we teach. We've both William and I have spent years teaching for free, but we know that like what we have to offer is something that is not being taught anywhere else in the world. The kind of economics we're teaching, the regenerative economy, it's really not available anywhere else. And so we valued that. We we put the price to value that and so that we could also reflect basically and invest into our own system so we can keep creating more businesses um, and either, you know, I would love to help people build climate smart businesses. William and I are basically ready in this course to not only help people design businesses like live within the course, but also really get just give them whole ideas because we don't have we have so many ideas that there's not enough lifetime for either of us to implement all the solutions that we know are the best practices and most viable. We really need people to come in and be a part of our team and be a part of our economy and create these uh, renewable resources in their local economies so that when disaster happens, when a climate disaster happens, economic disaster happens, political disaster happens, people have a highly renewable, reliable source of food, water, and shelter that's already being produced and that is independent of of kind of corporate and government um, activity. And I think that's the most secure and conservative way to to approach um, the environment and to approach kind of economics in general. Like I love the global village and global economics, but considering how important local economies are and how much they've been depleted, we clearly see that there's a huge imbalance and that we need to rebalance those skills. Excellent. I th- I think you're right. I think that you do have something to offer that is not being offered anywhere else. And I'm guessing that there are people out there who are actually looking for you because there are people who are realizing that in terms of economics, we can't continue to do business as usual. So check. they need to check out the new climate culture. We're going to put a link to your company and to Project Drawdown as well as permaculture on our page so that people can find you. And also, if they're interested in pursuing any of these others, we have those resources available. Eloisa, I always like to ask my guests if there is another woman or women who, environmentalists or not, who inspire you, who have inspired you, who continue to inspire you. Absolutely. I think that I'll name... Four, if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Four. These are these are the women who brought me into this community. That's why I want to honor them all because they were all there at the beginning of my journey. And that would be Mandolin Sattler, Yumi Moulter, Hannah Marie, and Pandora Thomas. All really incredible environmentalists that are each absolute just titans of their own, just uh, giants in each of their own right total experts in their fields and just want to shout them out and support them and honor them because I definitely wouldn't be ha- have been here without them. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Eloisa. I'd like to want to give a shout out and to you and your work. And I'm actually really grateful that you have created this and that you're on the planet. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I also feel the same for you. I'm so grateful for your support, your praise. And I love what you do, that you put women on the mic. That is the future. That is what was lacking in the past. So here we rise together. 
Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at eVoices Rising. Share this podcast and subscribe on our website, eVoicesRising.com. We have a library of resources for you on our website so you can dig into environmental issues yourself. Catherine Hayhoe, environmental scientist, says, just start by doing something, anything, and then talk about it. Talk about how it matters. You can connect the dots with friends and family and make a difference. Stay tuned for more episodes. Until next time.